Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would send your spirit to join us here today, that our minds can be enlightened, uh, misunderstandings, confusions that we might hold might be removed, and that we can see you clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are starting a new quarterly today. The, uh, and the title of the lesson guide is Loved and Loving John's Epistles. And if we look to the first quarter, the first lesson in the quarterly is entitled Jesus and the Johannine Letters. Somebody read for us the memory text, please. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. We have seen and testified that, that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. When, when you read that text, what does it mean to you? Particularly, from what was Jesus coming to save the world? From Satan? From death? From God's wrath or from God? From the penalty of the law? Consequences of sin? Guilt? All of it? Well, in, in the book of John, he's, uh, he's recounting the other John, John the Baptist, in, in chapter 1, verse 29. And John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. What does Jesus take away? What did Jesus come to take away? Okay. She's suggesting that, that he came to take away lies that were told about God and about the Father. I think that's, that's clearly part of the process. Did he come to take away more than lies? Show us the truth. Provide a cure. Provide a cure. But he come to take away, take away lies, anything besides lies he's taking away. What is sin? Because it says he's taking away sin. What is, what is sin? Yes. It's kind of like uh, spiritual cancer. I like that, spiritual cancer. Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a good metaphor. A good metaphor. When we think of sin and what Jesus came to take away, uh, can we be more specific? Did he come to take away the sinful acts that people have committed? Did he come to... What sinful acts has Jesus taken away? When Jesus died, did David no longer have the act of murdering Uriah and, and having adultery that she that act has been removed from history. Has any sinful act been removed? No. He came to take away the reason for the sinful acts. Oh I like that. She said he came to take away the reason for the sinful acts. Did he come to take away the record of the sinful acts? No, 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 no. He just he didn't come away to take. He didn't come to. He he came to take away sin. The Lamb of God, which takes away sin, but it's not acts. It's not records. Did he come to take away the punishment for the acts of sin? Well, there's a little more confusion on that one, isn't there? Oh, pardon? The inherent punishment. Did he come to take away God's wrath towards sin? No. Well, God does hate sin. Yeah, yeah. So will God's wrath and hatred towards sin ever get taken away? No. Or will he always hate sin? Yeah. Will a doctor always hate cancer? Yeah. 
Will a parent always hate meningitis that's killing their child? Yes. God will never like sin. So, did Christ come to take away God's anger or wrath towards sin? No. No, he didn't do that. Um, did he come to take away the consequences of sin? Yeah, when, uh, when David uh, murdered Uriah and, and stole Bathsheba, uh, did, did David get forgiveness and did he get uh, uh, reconciliation with God after that, after he repented? Did that happen? Yes. But did David still have consequences in his kingdom to deal with? Did Absalom still rebel? Did the, he lose one of his kids? Was there a revolt going on because of his actions? So did Jesus take away consequences? In your own life, uh, if, if sins that you've struggled with and you've experienced that reconciliation and repentance and restoration and renewed heart, has that removed any of the consequences that come in the aftermath of that? Or are there still consequences? But he does take away the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. The ultimate consequence, which is death. Mm-hmm. Takes away from who? Well, we were all born sinful, so those who accept him... It takes it away for us to accept those who have confessed. Those who have confessed. From where did Jesus come to take away sin? Where? Where is sin taken away from? Maybe he doesn't come to take away sin from us. Ah, you see, when we say he takes away the consequence of death, well, does he or does he take away sin? And therefore, when sin is removed, those who have had that new heart and right spirit don't experience that consequence. But for those who don't get sin removed from their lives, those who don't experience the new heart and right spirit, those who don't, don't have the law written in the heart again, they still experience that consequence. It's like being with cancer that you mentioned earlier. If we put cancer into remission, well, the person doesn't experience a death from cancer, not because the consequence of death has been removed from cancer, but the cancer has been removed. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think he came to take away consequences. I think he came to take away sin, is what the Bible says he came to take away. Isn't that what it says? The Lamb of God which re- takes away the sin of the world. So he takes it away from our hearts and minds. But doesn't Paul also say that the entire world groans under the weight of Doesn't this whole nature, this whole creation need to have sin removed from it? Yeah. If we take sin away, remove it from a being, a being who is currently sinful, if if God is able, through his methods and principles and his actions and his spirit and all the things that he does, his grace is able to remove sin from a being, what happens to that being? What will the course of that being's life, what, what, what will happen over the course of time, if the sin is removed from the being. If we want to use human, from the human being, what happens to that human being? Life eternal. Life eternal. Isn't that what happens? Now, what happened to Enoch? Do you think somewhere in Enoch's journey, God was able to remove sin or take sin away from Enoch? How about Elijah? Was God able to take sin away from Elijah? Yeah. And where are they today? Yes. 
I mean, his goal is to, is to the Lamb of God which takes away the sin, which takes away the cancer of the world, the spiritual cancer of the world. Hmm. So, if we totally then eradicate sin, what happens to death? From where does death arise? Think your Bible text now. The wages of sin is sin when it is full grown brings forth death. That's James chapter 115. So if we remove sin, we also remove death. And then notice Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. See, he's come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. His death and we take away sin, we take away death. He wants to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then 2 Timothy 1.10. But has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, somehow removing sin is also the process of destroying death, isn't it? Yeah. Can you articulate that connection to the class? How did he do it? By beholding, we become changed. That's how we become changed. How did Jesus, though, take away sin? By living a perfect life. Because the traditional view would have us believe that what happened? How did he do it? Every act of sin committed by every sinful human being, past, present, and future, was piled upon Christ at the cross, and he was punished the due punishment due for all those sins on the cross and suffered the weight of all those sins on the cross. Isn't that what's traditionally taught? Does anybody have any questions or concerns or, or difficulties with that idea? First off, because we've already said he doesn't take away acts, does he? The acts aren't taken away, but then why are we saying the acts are piled upon him? I mean, do you see some cognitive, really, really big problems if we say that individual acts of sin were placed upon Christ at the cross? First off, if that was the deal, and all the acts of sin were placed upon Christ at the cross, and just punishment was, was meted out by God, which is often taught as well, and he experienced the, the, the due punishment of God's law upon sin at the cross, which is often taught. Well then, what, what about those who won't accept Jesus at the end? If their sins have already been punished in Christ, how dare God punish them again? I mean, it's double jeopardy, isn't it? I mean, that sin's been punished. You can't punish me for it. Christ has taken my punishment. Whether I accept it or not, you, all, they've already been placed there. It's already been punished. Or what about this? Hitler and Stalin, who killed 20 million or more people together or more, they shortened their lives, and all those people who died at their hands then didn't go on to commit the sins in life that they would have committed otherwise. So billions of sins weren't committed. Well, then Hitler and Stalin were reducing the suffering of Christ, weren't they? Because all those sins weren't placed on Christ that weren't committed. Or if we commit abortions and children are never born, thus they never have sinful lives and they never commit bad acts and those acts are never placed on Christ, well, we can really do Christ's great service by reducing his suffering if we do more of that, yes? There's a serious problem with this idea that the acts of sin were placed on Christ. What was actually placed on Christ? The cancer, right? The spiritual disease, the defect in humanity that, that came as a result of Adam's condition. He partook of our humanity, partook of our condition. He became one with us. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. 
It says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Now, now notice these next words. So, taking up our infirmities, what does that sound like to you? He, what's an infirmity? If you're infirmed, if you have infirmity, what does that mean? You're ill, you're sick. So, he took up our infirmities, what does that mean? Yeah, he took our, our sick condition, yes. When you say he took it up at the cross, he took it up in his whole life. Exactly right. When he came as, uh, when he, at the incarnation, was when he actually took upon the sins of the world because he took on himself the nature that Adam had established in humanity. That's exactly right. But we, we need to be very careful how we say that. Uh, since you brought that issue up, um, Adam was created out of the dust of the ground. God breathed in his nostrils a breath of life. He became a perfect sinless being. Did Jesus' humanity come into the world that way? No. Eve was taken from his side, another sinless being. Did Jesus' humanity come into that way? No. no. You and I are born from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Did Jesus' humanity have a sinful mother and sinful father? No. No. His mother was sinful, Mary, but his father was God. So Jesus is unique. He's not exactly like any of us. He is unique. Okay? So he partook of our humanity through his mother, but his father was God. So he wasn't exactly like us. He was different. But he could experience temptation just like we experience temptation through the humanity he took by his, his mother. And I think we'll get to that in the lesson. So he took up our infirmities, our, our condition that leads us into these difficult circumstances. But notice what it says in the next phrase. After he takes up our infirmities, what will we think? What will we understand it to be? Notice this. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. So we're going to think God is the one abusing his son, killing his son, smacking his son around, punishing his son. We're going to misunderstand and think God was taking uh, 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 vengeance upon his son at the cross. But notice what he goes on to say. Next verse. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, any thoughts about that phrase? What does it sound like is happening as we read this description? It takes our infirmities, and what does the Isaiah text say results from his experience? By his wounds we are healed. What is the result of his experience? Healing for us. Does it say that by his experience there, legal penalties have been paid? Father's wrath has been assuaged? Debt has been canceled? No. It says we've been healed. We've been restored. We've been regenerated. It's about healing and restoring us. So, what do you think about the word punishment there, though? Does that throw anybody for a little difficulty? Well, he was punished, though. And punishment is, is kind of like a, a legal thing. This, people will throw this up. And, you know, a judicial body has to mete out the just punishment for sin. And God, of course, is the arbiter of true justice. And he has to mete out the just punishment for sin. Does anybody have any concerns about the punishment here? The evil men did punish him. So evil men now are the... Are the... It wasn't God's punishment. God didn't punish him. We oh. Previously, he already said it, we will esteem him as stricken by God. We will consider him stricken by God. God didn't control the actions and behaviors of the evil men that put him on the cross and killed him. Yes. What about the text where the, about the Father, if, if, if the Father doesn't punish you when you do something wrong... The father needs, a father needs to punish his son when he's done something wrong. Oh, uh, you're talking about um, God disciplines those he loves? Discipline comes from the root word to disciple, which means to teach. 
punishment comes from the word punitive, which means to exact vengeance. Do they mean the same thing? We, in American society, use them synonymously. Punishment and discipline synonymously. They are not really synonyms. They don't mean the same thing. How many parents in here discipline their children because you love them? Is it ever in your heart to hurt them, to make them suffer for the purpose of suffering? In fact, if you could bring them to repentance, if you could bring the change of heart, if you could bring the, the healthier transformation of character that you're longing as a parent to bring without ever ex- having them experiencing any pain at all, would you do it that way? Yeah, there's no desire in the heart of a parent to cause pain to their children. But the parent will bring discipline that might be painful in the circumstances, the only way to, to free them of a, of a defect of character. Yes, but is that punishment or is that discipline? Yeah, that's discipline. So, how do we like this word punishment? Well, interestingly, the Hebrew and some of the other translations don't have the word punishment. King James does not have the word punishment. King James has the word chastisement. Does, do you hear chastisement different than punishment? And the actual Hebrew is a word moser, which is translated, interestingly enough, six times as the word bands and five times as the word bond. Band or bond is the word translated chastisement or punishment. Yes? I like a lot of reasoning you've been using, but I just want to hear you address, to take a step further, because um, it says he was, we were healed. It doesn't say the healing process was begun. And so I can imagine other people that have more of a view of... Um, or shall I say a less legalistic view about you know pursuit of perfection, wiping all sins out from your life, would say we were healed. It wasn't like a step was taken so that we, you know, would continue the burden of and then taking it back to another part of the conversation, eliminating every actual sin. You know, sinful nature was conquered. We were healed. And so when did we collectively we become sinners? And there was a time we became sinners. When was that time? When, when, when uh, Paul says that, that Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek. Remember Paul talks about Levi paying tithe to Melchizedek? How does he attribute that, since Levi wasn't even alive then? How does he say it happened? Ancestors. Through Abraham. When Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, Levi was paying tithe because Levi was in Abraham. Are we see a connection here. When did every person in this room become a sinner? When Adam sinned. And you read the Romans text that there was the whole world became sinners through Adam, and the whole world was made righteous through Christ. So he achieved the human victory for the species human by his death. The species human was made righteous. Now the question that remains open that you're asking, which is not what the text is actually uh, dealing with, is how many other specimens of humanity are going to join him in his victory? And that's why the metaphor of the vine, we are either, and if you've ever looked at a family tree written out on paper, what does it look like? Why do they call it a family tree? It branches, branches, branches. There's a well. There's a the whole family tree stems back to Adam and Eve. That's where it originates. That's where you infect the very first parents, 
You infect the whole tree. Christ came, grafted in, down the road, with a different father, and starts a new family tree. And all of us have the choice of being grafted in to him, and then we experience, I'm the vine, you're the branches, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. But it was Christ's victory that started a new line of, of victory for humanity. Does that make sense, or did I confuse people? Did that answer your question? Okay. Yes. So what does it mean that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities? That is so perfect. Perfect question, right on time. That is a great question. So just, just to finish up the bandit or bondage, it, it really also means this, this chastisement or punishment means discipline. It means through his discipline, through what he went through, through what he suffered, we are healed. So... The next question was, pierced for our transgressions or crushed for our iniquities. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word, M-I-N, min, translated for, is a preposition. It actually means because of. I put these uh, lexicon references in the notes for those who get to notes, so you can check this out for yourself. Does it change the meaning or does it change our insight or understanding? It says, but he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The discipline that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Does that make a difference? Because that's, that is right in harmony with the Hebrew. But see, when we translate, I mean, can't words have different meanings? So when you translate, you're translating through the lens of your preconceived understanding. What happens if you go to the Bible as a translator and you believe that the plan of salvation was to pay the legal penalty for our sins and our debt? Then do you maybe translate, instead of because of, for. It was for our transgression. You had to pay the penalty for our sin. And so you put four, which is a four is a, is, a, is a very legitimate way to translate that particular preposition. It can go that way. But it can also go the other way. Which is more reasonable, that he was translated for the penalty of or because of? Because the fact we were sick. I mean, what's the reality here? Adam sinned. He's dying. He's terminal. Christ came for what purpose? To fix it. To save him. To heal him. And it was because he was sick. Because we were in, in, in sin, Christ had to die. Does that make sense? Did that answer your question? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still wrapping my brain around this whole thing. Okay. All right. Fair. That's fair. But let's take another text from the New Testament. Paul. This whole concept of, of Christ's death and, how it, you know, and what it does. This is out of 2 Corinthians 2.15. And notice this. God made him who had no sin to be... Sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is the reason Paul says Christ became sin who knew no sin? For what purpose does Paul attribute here? For us to become righteous. What does that sound like? Legal pardon? Paying the penalty? Or does it sound like healing? Regeneration? recreation, restoration, so that we can become righteous. In other words, Christ's death was to remove sin, iniquity and from us and restore us to righteousness, to put humanity, the human race, back into God's original design that he designed mankind and Adam to become. Well, if you go to Eden, what was, what was God's purpose in the creation of Adam and Eve? Was it not to be God-like. Let us make man in our image. Yes. 
so if you think all this in mind, the epistle of John says that, that, and it emphasizes the importance of Christ being both God and man. Why was it important that, God, uh, that Christ was both? Thoughts on that? Any thoughts? He couldn't be tempted as God. Okay. James chapter 1 says that, that God cannot be tempted by evil. So as his divinity, so whenever you read about Christ's journey on earth, when you see him being tempted of the devil, when you see him in Gethsemane struggling and agonizing, you know that is not his divine nature there. That's his human nature there. Because divinity cannot be tempted by evil. Humanity can be tempted by evil. So, so yes, he had to become human in order to reverse the damage that Adam's sin had done to humanity. Well, how did sin start in heaven? How did it start, though? How? Jealousy of God. Yeah, and, and what did Satan do to get a third of the angels to leave heaven with him? About? Okay, so, so lies are told about God, and how did he get Eve to sin? Lies about? God, again, the implication was God, you can't trust him. He's trying to keep you down. God's not really good. He's not really your friend. So it lies about God. So, if that's the, the root, the origin of, of the whole rebellion, then why did Jesus have to come as both God and man? Won't part of the remedy require answering the, the allegations, the lies? Won't part of the remedy require representing or revealing the truth about God in order to, re, to refute those lies and to disprove those lies? So, what would we learn about God if a created being had come? If an angel had come instead of Christ, lived a perfect life, and been crucified on the cross, what does that tell us about God? It tells us that he'd be willing to sacrifice someone else. Yes, it tells us that he would be willing to sacrifice one of his creatures to protect himself. Doesn't it tell us that? Wow. Does that enhance our trust in God or undermine it? Yeah. Only God could reveal the truth about God. You see, when we have the idea, well, someone who is sinless and has to live a perfect life needs to pay our legal debt, well, why couldn't an angel do that? Well, the traditional answer is because the law is as holy as God and only one as holy as God could pay a legal penalty worth the weight of the law. Does that sound satisfying to you? No. But, but I think it's very, very reasonable that... Only God could answer questions about God. An angel can't really answer those questions. What was the problem that sin caused humanity? Once Adam sinned, what was the problem it caused that the plan of salvation was designed to fix? Out of harmony with God. Out of harmony with God. See, this, this is not a trick question, because a lot of theological treatments, and as a doctor, I don't know, you guys maybe know I'm a doctor, and we're, tra- we're taught to, tr- to think in certain ways. And one of the ways we're taught to think is to diagnose a problem before you try to find a solution. Because if you try to give solutions or remedies to problems that you haven't diagnosed, what's the problem with that? You might be treating the wrong problem. You see? And much of theology has done that. Much of theology has come up with theological remedies to sin without having first diagnosed what the problem is. And this is why we have so many of these, these legal, distorted payment appeasement things, because the idea inherent is, well, when man sinned, it offended God's righteous character and holiness, and he's angry and wrathful now, and something has to be done in order to assuage the Father's wrath and appease his anger. You see, if that's the solution, then what's the problem? 
Well, the problem is, when man sinned, God got mad. God got changed by man's sin. But did God get changed by man's sin? Who got changed? So, so just with that piece of knowledge alone, when man sinned, man got changed, not God. We know then that whatever the solution is, its, it's focus is to fix man, not to fix God. So that you can, you can, just with that piece alone, start unraveling all the things that Christ did. Keep in mind, what he's doing is to fix the problem sin caused. And the problem that sin caused didn't change God, so he's not fixing his father. So ideas with, with Jesus pleading his blood to the father, my, my, my blood, father, my flood, please don't be angry. Now, that has Jesus trying to fix who? God. Well, that's not needed, because God wasn't problematic. God hadn't been changed. Man had been changed. Man needed to be fixed. And so, we notice then, 1 John 3.8, in our epistles of John. 1 John 3.8, it says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, and we've already given two reasons, one to destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and one to destroy death and bring life and immortality to life. So, destroy death, destroy the devil, and then this reason. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Three reasons. Destroy death, destroy the devil, destroy the devil's work. This is what Christ came to do. What was the devil's work? What was the devil working to do? This is out of... I can let you guys process and bounce that around if you want. What the devil, what's the devil working to do? Kill and destroy. Kill and destroy. I like that. You bet he is. Yes. Well, it wasn't just to kill and destroy. It was to... Uh... Be at war with God. Be at war with God. And what did what was the apple of God's eye? And what's the Bible say the apple of his eye is? Humanity is the apple of his eye. We are the pinnacle of creation. And so if you hate God, what do you want to do? I mean, as a parent, if someone wants to hurt you the most, do they attack you directly or do they hurt your kid? Is there any question in the room on that? So when Satan wants to hurt God, who does he go after? Mankind, his children. Yeah. And so, listen to this. Lift him up, page 48. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God, and designed to be the counterpart of God. But Satan has labored. What's another word for labored? Satan has worked to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint his own image. What is Satan's work? To take mankind, created in the image of God, with dignity and nobility of character, to reveal God in all of our actions and dealings and living, and to erase the image of God and to make us demonic. He is working to destroy the image of God in man and make us look like Satan. That is his work. Christ came to destroy death. He came to destroy the devil. And he came to destroy the devil's work. Which means he was going to put godliness perfectly back into humanity. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Yeah. And do we find that Christ did that? He came to fix the species human, to put God's law of love back into the living temple that God created to be the repository of his law. You know, you know the law of love is a living law? You can't understand the law of love written on stone. You've heard that Ten Commandments are transcript of God's character? You all heard that? I could take a blood sample and do a DNA on you guys, and we could do a DNA transcript. We could actually write your DNA sequence, and we could say we have a transcript of you. That would be true. And with that transcript on paper, would we know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the joy of your smile? Would we know those things by looking at the paper? 
No, the law of love is like that. We can learn certain things about it written on stone, but that is not where it was to be written. The law is to be written where? In the heart. It is a living law. We cannot see the law of love fully unless it's being fully lived out in a living being who loves others more than selves. And and mankind was designed to operate in that kind of way as the repository of God's law of love. Adam and Eve, the the perfect union of two separate beings, loving others, each other constantly, giving for each other constantly, the perfect circle of joy ever being fulfilled in in that relationship, bringing forth new children and new beings in their image to love more. Satan infected that and put his image there instead. All about me, self-centeredness. Watch out for number one. Christ came to reverse that, to put the living law of love back into the living temple that God designed it to be in. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became, through his journey, his perfect life, his death and resurrection, he became, in his humanity, what God designed Adam to become. Isn't that why God is a trinity and not just a single being? Because... You have to have somebody else to love also. Great insight. Love cannot exist in isolation. This is another real, real powerful insight as to why God is the triune God, because love does not exist in singularity. Love is other-centered, outward-moving. It's giving of self for others. Uh, and God is loving the Spirit, and the Spirit's loving the Son, and the Son's loving the Father, and it's if this can, perpetual other-centered giving. And there's, there's many Bible references describing that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's exactly right. Yeah, God is love. Um, thoughts or questions about any of that? This has a statement from an old song that says, I am love, you are love, and you risk loving me because of the one who loved me most, knows me best. I think when we know that, we can risk being like him with ourselves, people close and strangers and people we don't. Yeah, that, there's no question. Um, what is it that awakens love in our heart? Love. Goodness of God. Yes, the goodness of God, love. Why is it that we are able to love? Can anybody in this room who's born infected in, with, with fear and selfishness, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, love in your own self, all by yourself? No, it's, if you have love in your life, if you're able to love others, it's an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Because we inherently, by ourselves, are not capable of loving. It's only the regenerating power of God working in our lives that give us the capacity to love. Now, Adam, in his creation before sin... And he was, was created perfectly, and, and as a, a being who was sinless, he was able to love of his, own, of his own energy, of his own initiative. He was capable of loving then, but not once he changed himself. He wasn't anymore. We only now. But God is working to restore us back that one day, after the second coming, we are going to be able to love freely again. And when God finishes his work in us, I've said this before to some of you, that it will be easy for us to love others as it is to breathe. When was the last time you had to work to breathe? It's just natural. That is the natural order of God's universe, that we naturally love others with every fiber of our being. That's the way God designed us to live. Yes? Will that not happen until after the second coming? Will there be a people on earth that are so established in that selfless giving and loving others before Christ comes that they will be able to love selflessly? I think that they will be able to love selflessly before the second coming. I do. But I think they will also um, be tempted through that process. Mm -hmm. And there will be anguish and and emotional stress as as they're loving. If you look at Christ in Gethsemane, I think that's the example. He was loving perfectly through the whole experience. 
but through that experience, he also had to battle with some very powerful, uncomfortable emotions that weren't warm and fuzzy. Um, I think after the regeneration, after the coming, those type of negative feelings that we battle with won't be part of the experience anymore. So I think you're right. We will be able to love through the power of God working in us, but we will also, in the middle of that love, have feelings that tempt us not to love. After the second coming, that negative part of it will be completely gone. It will be only love. Before, it won't be as easy as breathing. Yes, before it won't be as easy as breathing. Yes, but but afterwards it will be. Yes. The essence of temptation is a simulated love. And that's how he gets us. Because he appeared to Eve in the garden when she was wandering in feeling And he was this warm, comforting addiction, which is always a shortcut. And I mean, that is how he wants us to go now. He wants us to take the shortcut to him instead of having the healing of God's spirit. I like where you go with that for us that are sin- sinners on this earth, that we do have this insecurity, this fear we're born with, this loneliness, this longing for some feeling. I think that's true. Um, I think Eve, however, did not experience that. And in- I don't think she walked through the garden feeling lonely. I don't think that was part of her experience. I think she had a, quite, a great sense of peace and comfort. To rephrase that, say she was alone. Yes, she was alone. But yeah, but I don't think she was lonely. Not feeling lonely, but she was alone and vulnerable. Okay, Because I think if they'd have been together, they'd have had a short conference and this wouldn't have happened. And I think Lucifer knew that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that she was alone. Yeah. In Monday's lesson, somebody read the bottom green. Yes. Oh, yeah, way in the back. Sorry. I just have a question about that because in Genesis 3, when he goes and says that, um, is it 3? 3 6. 3 6, it says she also gave something to her husband who was with her. Yeah, he was with her in the garden. But then they ate and both their eyes were open. It says she was, she was alone and she was tempted, but he was with her in the garden. So the garden, they were together in the garden, but they weren't together by each other's side when she was tempted. Well, does it say that in all versions that alone? And I know some people want to make this look like Adam was just standing there silently not doing anything. <laughs> Eve was wandering away from her husband in the garden. They were both together in the garden, but she'd wandered immediately from his side. She was not standing at his side when she came across. And she didn't go over there with the, with the purpose of, of encountering. the. Uh, she was carrying on her work and just wandered away and ended up over there, and that's when the, the opportunity was taken. Yes. I was talking with relatives last weekend about this, and they said that Eve was deceived, but Adam made a decisive choice. The Bible says Eve was deceived about the character of God. Uh, Once Eve was deceived, she became the medium to then deceive her husband. However, because of what Eve was now going through, Adam, if you want to use these words, was deceived about what God was going to do in regard to Eve. And he didn't trust God to handle Eve and not lose Eve. wasn't that he was deceived about what happened to Eve. He understood. That was the devil. This was the enemy they'd been warned about. She had been lied. She'd taken the fruit. But now he was too preoccupied and concerned about losing Eve, and he didn't trust God to handle the situation with Eve, so he chose to go with her fate rather than lose her. So it was a different issue that Adam was deceived upon. Is everybody comfortable with that? He's already having insecurities and fears at that point. Wouldn't he have already had some power other than God working on him? Because being created from a being, he's not going to have insecurities and worry about God's intentions and worry about God's actions and everything. Uh, that was the temptation. He was capable of experiencing that when it was presented to him in that way. 
So Eve presented it to him, and now he's faced with this, and that caused the insecurities and uncertainties that he had. The angels in heaven, when Lucifer lied about the Father, while they were not sinners, they experienced doubts and uncertainties. Even the loyal angels had questions. They didn't rebel, they, did, they stayed loyal, but they had uncertainties and doubts. Yeah. Monday's lesson, bottom green section. Somebody read that for us. The idea of doctrinal orthodoxy sounds so legal. It reminds people of such things as the Inquisition when folks were tortured and killed because they weren't orthodox enough in their theology. Hence, many shy away from the idea of orthodoxy altogether, arguing instead that all you need is love, regardless of teaching. John, though, whatever his strong emphasis on, whatever his strong emphasis on love, didn't shy away from dealing with theological error. What should this tell us regarding how we should act when it makes a theological error in our own church? This is a question uh, that the, the epistles of John were trying to deal with theological error in the church. And um, Monday and Tuesday's lessons both bring out this idea the purpose of these writings were to deal with theological error that was creeping up in the church. And I had the question, um, in Christ's day, theological errors had entered the organized religious system, right? And these errors made it hard for the people to recognize and accept Christ. Is it possible errors are actually taught within an organized body of Christianity today? Does our concept of God change if we have errors introduced into our teaching? What happens to us? What happens to us if we believe falsehood, if we believe lies? What happens to us? Our, our attitude toward God changes. Is that all? We just have attitudinal change or something else happen? Everything. Heart. Let me just give you some examples of what happens based on what we believe and how powerful your beliefs are and how powerful your mind is. A guy named Sam Schumann was diagnosed with liver cancer in 1970. He was told by his doctors he just had a few months to live, and within those few months he died. At autopsy, it was discovered that the doctors were wrong. He had a tiny tumor that had not spread out of his liver. He didn't die of liver cancer. He died of believing he was, had terminal liver cancer. Have you ever heard of the placebo effect? The placebo effect is when you take something you think is going to help you and you get a positive response. There's the opposite of that called the nocebo effect. The nocebo effect is when you believe something negative is going to happen to you and therefore you have negative experiences. Interestingly, PET scans of our brain now show that when somebody has the placebo response, the positive response, they're given a medicine that's told it's going to help them and they, get the, and they feel good and they get these, these positive responses to it, that in the brain, dopamine levels and brain-produced opioid levels rise when you believe the good thing. Dopamine is the feel-good chemical. If you've been in love and that floating high and you're all excited, that's a dopamine surge in your brain. Um, and then the opioids, like enkephalins and endorphins, we can get those after a, a runner's high. You exercise and you get that runner's high, that good feeling, you feel good all over. That's a release of endorphins and enkephalins. When you believe, if you take a sugar pill, but you believe it's a real pain pill, your brain will release dopamine and release these opioids, which will make you feel good. If you believe you've been cursed, you have a belief that some, some, uh, some you know, bad thing is, is, is happening to you, you've taken a poison of some sort, then the brain actually reduces dopamine and opioid levels, they fall. Which means you're going to hurt and ache more and you're going to feel more dysphoric and distressed. Based on your belief, you change neurochemistry in your brain. Now, Derek Adams... In the aftermath of a breakup with his girlfriend, overdosed on all the pills he had been given in the antidepressant trial he was uh, uh, participating in. But then he became afraid that he actually might die, so he called for help and was taken to the hospital. 
And at the hospital, he was shaky, pale, drowsy. His blood pressure dropped seriously low. They gave him, uh, they gave him six liters of IV fluids trying to stabilize his blood pressure, but they couldn't do it. They checked labs, and they couldn't find anything wrong with his labs. And, and he was destabilizing further. Blood pressure was continuing to fall. So they got a hold of the uh, doctor from the trial, and they broke the, uh, they broke the seal on the trial to discover what substance he was on so they could treat him. And they discovered he was on placebo. He was in the control group. <laughs> Once they told him that he had just taken sugar pills, within 15 minutes, all of his symptoms resolved and his blood pressure normalized. <laughs> now, any of the doctors in the room doubt this? No. And the French Revolution did the same thing. He killed a person by dripping water over his arm. He said in the French Revolution they killed a person by dripping water over his arm. A person who was condemned to die, the same way the guillotine was offered as a medical experiment. They told him he was going to die by exsanguination. They pricked his skin and then dripped warm liquid over his arm and told him he was bleeding to death. And he died oh, of hyperbolemic wow. shock. What do you think would happen if some people that you believed were Iraqi terrorists kidnapped you, put threw you on a helicopter? They fly the helicopter a thousand feet in the air, blindfold you, tie you up, knock you around a little bit. Not too bad, just, just bump you up a little bit so you really are terrified. And then while they're doing all that, after you're blindfolded, they lower the helicopter to six inches off the ground and they shove you out the door. What do you think would happen to you? Do you think you'd probably have a heart attack and die? Even though you're only six inches off the ground, you see the perception of what we believe. Yes, back here. What if, what if we actually believe that God liked us and loved us? Okay, what do we believe if God liked us and loved us? Actually, studies at, uh, by Andrew Newberg at Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania Medical College, um, looked at what happens in the brain when you worship a God of love, a God just like Jesus, an altruistic, benevolent, loving God who would rather die than do anything to hurt you. Um, the anterior cortex, part of your prefrontal cortex, expands and develops. They can measure this within four weeks. If you spend 15 minutes a day meditating on a God of love, do you remember one of the founders of our church, Ellen White, said, we should spend a thoughtful hour every day meditating on the life of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the life of Jesus Christ look like? Love. Okay, and if you spend a thoughtful hour, just 15 minutes a day, for four weeks, they can see growth in the anterior cortex. Anterior cortex is the part of the brain where you experience love, health, peace, compassion, other-centeredness, altruism. Now, think about, I want you all to think for a moment about times in your life where you were in that moment of real love, where you felt that truly other-centered moment of compassion and deep caring for another person. Everybody got a moment of memory like that? How much fear do you experience in that moment? Perfect love casts out all Neurobiologically, the anterior cingular cortex where you experience love is directly wired into your fear circuits and, sh and turns them off. Shuts down fear when we love. This is the pathway in which we overcome fear in our life. So when we worship and meditate on God of love, the anterior cingular cortex grows stronger. Conversely, his studies show that when you worship a punitive God, an arbitrary God, a punishing God, a God who must rain fire down from heaven to make you pay, that the anterior cingular cortex doesn't grow stronger, the fear circuits grow stronger. Not only did the anterior cortex grow stronger on these patients in four weeks, they did memory testing before and after. Four weeks later, 30% improvement in memory scores. Not only that, they measured blood pressure, heart rate, and catecholamine, stress hormone levels in the body. Four weeks later, measurable reductions in heart rate, blood pressure, and stress hormone levels in the body. Worshiping a God of meditating on a God of love. What happens when we believe God is love? Perfect love casts out all fear. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
love is the medium of life and health. Um, fear is the medium of death. When we are in fear, the fear circuits cause the catecholamine levels to rise which shunt blood out of the gut into the muscles. It's called the fight or flight response. Now when the blood is shunted out of the gut into the muscles so you can survive, the survival of the fittest deal, can you grow nutritionally in those, in those moments? No. no, in fact, if you've just eaten a big meal and you get terribly frightened and are really stressed and maybe running from a, an Iraqi soldier for your life, what are you likely to do with that meal? <laughs> Whoop, here it comes. Can't deal with it. You can't absorb nutrients. You can't grow physiologically under high stress, high fear. What happens to the prefrontal cortex when you are under high stress, high fear? It gets paralyzed. Have you ever heard of test anxiety? People go in, they study, they know everything, and then they get really stressed. The they, amygdala, the fear centers are firing, paralyzes the prefrontal cortex. How about maybe some, some of you have had the experience that you're going to get up and make an announcement in front of church, and you know exactly what you're going to say, and you get up there, you walk up, and then you look at that audience, and everything freezes. What happens? The fear center frees prefrontal cortex. When we live in fear, we don't grow physiologically. And when the prefrontal cortex isn't working, we don't grow intellectually. We don't grow spiritually. We don't grow relationally. We don't grow. Fear is a medium of death. Love is a medium of growth in life. So, continuing on, I gave you some examples there. Don't you find it fascinating? So what you believe, what you believe has direct impact on you here and now. Physically, spiritually, relationally, intellectually, everything. This is why you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Satan is the father of lies. If he gets you to believe lies, he's, he's got power over you. Another, another true story, in the 1930s down in Alabama, is met in a cemetery in the middle of the night in Alabama. A, a w- local witch doctor curses him and tells him that he is, he's going to die and he's not going to recover. He goes home. He starts to have nausea. He can't eat. He, he, he gets sick. He, he starts losing weight. They take him to a hospital, and they do all kinds of tests. Like doctors can't find anything wrong. He's, he's emaciated. He's, he's been going on for three or four weeks now, and he's, I mean, he's really, really in a, in a bad shape. The doctor, then the wife, finally tells the doctor what happened about this curse. And the doctor thinks, what should he do? What should he do? What should he do? So he goes out, comes back the next day says to the patient the family, I went to that cemetery last night and I found that witch doctor and I held him up against a tree and, and, and choked him until he told me how the curse worked. And what he told me was he rubbed some lizard, legs into, uh, lizard eggs into your abdomen and there's a lizard growing inside of you. And we have to get that out and break the curse. And so at, at the moment, with, with great pomp and circumstance, a nurse comes in with great ceremony and injects him with a substance, which was simply a medicine that makes you vomit. And, and injects him with a substance. And the guy's hurling up the vomit. The doctor, surreptitiously out of his lab coat pocket, drops a little green lizard into the vomit. <laughs> <laughs> and says, look, the curse is lifted. You've been set free. The guy fell into a fitful sleep, woke up, started eating ravenously, and was healed. <laughs> it's a true story. True story. I could go on all day. All day, what you believe. This is how shaman curses work. This is how, this is by the way, how shaman sticks. This is how lucky charms work. This is how people that wear these little talismans get it. And, and if you believe in it, it does have a benefit for you. It really does. It's not magic. It really works. Why? I'll give you an example. If I take a gymnastics balance beam, which is four inches wide, and lay it on the floor here and ask you all to walk across it, most of you would do it with no trouble. Take that same four-inch balance beam, put it 100 feet in the air, and ask you to walk across it. How many are you going to make it? Well, what's the same four inches? But what's the difference? Your fear level is so high now, it actually impairs your functioning. You make more mistakes. You make more errors. Because you're afraid. 
and you believe you can't make it. And your belief changes. But if you have a magic talisman that tells you you can't fall and you're completely relaxed, your likelihood of making it across, not a guarantee, but your likelihood goes way up if you're not nervous and stressed. These things have real power. What you believe has real power over your life. And thus the warfare we fight in Corinthians is a warfare in your mind over what you believe. The warfare between Christ and Satan happens right here. And there are lies being told in churches, including our own, about God that keeps us afraid of Him. And if we're afraid of Him, we can't grow spiritually. We can't be healed. And everything that you believe that makes you afraid of God, I'm talking not awe, not admiration, not wonderment. Yeah, we want that. I'm talking terrified of God. There's some lie working in your life. Some lie. Because perfect love casts out all fear. And God is love. So the more perfectly we know Him, the less fear we have. Boy, our time is almost out. Um, in our lesson notes, I did this two weeks in a row. I had listed because it was talked about the errors coming to the church, so I took the stuff we didn't get to last week and all those different beliefs that we could talk about that we didn't get to in the notes last week. I said, well, we'll talk about them this week. And guess what? We're running out of time again. But what do we learn about God if we believe the wicked die in the end because God inflicts it? What do we learn about God if we believe the wicked die in the end as a natural result of being sought of harmony with God, they cannot survive in his presence? Is there a difference? What happens to us if we believe one or the other? Right now, which one of those you believe, does it have a consequence on what happens to your neurobiology and who you become? Yes. Satan wants you to believe the lie because he can control you. He can keep you in fear. He can destroy you. It is coming back to the perfect knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Father, as revealed in Jesus Christ, that we experience healing, regeneration, renewal. All right, let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not abandoned us in the darkness and misapprehensions and misunderstandings about your character and the defects of our own hearts that have been infected when Adam sinned. But you came. You came to reveal the truth to win us to trust. But more than that, you came to put your perfect law of love back into us. We open our hearts now and ask that the spirit we poured out to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. It will be no longer our fear-centered, self-centered selves living, but it will be Christ that lives in us, that we can love you and love others perfectly as you would have us love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.